0: Good morning. My name is Stephanie Marsilio, and I'll be reading the text this morning. Um, You can feel free to open your Bibles. We'll be reading from Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, or you can follow along in the YouVersion app, or just look up at the screen. That's what I usually do, so feel free. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, "I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins." Thanks, Stephanie.
1: Good morning, I'm Claude. Me and my wife Meredith are the lead pastors here, and uh, we're continuing a series. Called for the better for the better and this morning uh the message is entitled a better story better story and boy have i got some stories that i could share uh but one of the things that came to mind as i was preparing the message this week is uh we lived in the syracuse area uh for in a home for about 12 years we had uh purchased a home and um we actually moved from the syracuse area out to here to establish centerway and uh Prior to us moving, there was some work that needed to be done in the house. And we had gotten this uh, grant because they found lead in the paint on the outside of our house. So all of a sudden we had this grant to be able to do all this work around the the house. And so there were certain things that we could change that like wouldn't even dawn on me to change. One of them was the water line. They could install a a new water line It was free. And so I was like, sure, it's free, I'll I'll take that. Zero dollars, (laughs) deal. And so uh, that was one of the things that they installed, and so the county kind of outsources this to um, different plumbers and stuff like that, and so all of a sudden this guy just shows up. And it's, it's usually kind of a hit and miss thing anyway when you hire uh, someone unless it's somebody that you know that knows them or whatever, and so it always feels a little bit uneasy, but in this case it was super awkward because these people just show up, and I have, the first time I'm meeting them is when they're walking into my home. And uh, they were a, a colorful group. Um, They were really unique. And what was super unique about the situation is that the the master plumber, the the guy that was in charge of the job, um, went to high school with the code enforcer of the village I lived in and did not like each other, hated each other. And I didn't realize that until they began screaming at one another in my yard. And uh, so there was a whole mess of kind of series of things that happened as they're working on my home. Uh, And to just give you an idea, at one point, it involved the plumber um, saying a whole mess of things that will not be repeated uh, about this gentleman, about his mother, about... (laughs) Everything that there was to do with all the people related to him and uh, I was like oh my goodness and he's grabbing his tools and he's throwing them into his truck as he's cussing this guy out and he grabs one of these huge pipe wrenches if you've ever seen I mean huge like something that would typically probably take two people to move carefully and this guy grabs it and in a fit of rage decides to throw it in the back of his truck and of course he could barely pick it so he can't really throw it and it just hits the side of his truck and dents in the back part. So then he's like, look what you did in my truck. He's like, I didn't do that. And it just kept on escalating. It was the only time in my married life that I looked at Meredith and said, listen, do me a favor. Don't go outside. She's like, what? Why? I was like, because this dude's going to say something to you and I'm going to tell him not to. And it's just going to turn into something crazy. Just please hide until this job is done. Uh, It was crazy. And so as the job went on, uh, I come down into my basement and There's a guy meticulously patching a hole where the new copper line, water line is coming through the foundation of my home. And as he's kind of meticulously cleaning this up, um, the master plumber comes downstairs. He goes, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm just finishing it up. And he goes, it's close enough. And he's like, what? He goes, good enough. And I'm like, wow, that's compelling thanks, buddy. Like, I'm standing right here. I was like, well, by all means, I mean, finish the job. And he's like, well, you know, it's, it's good. And the guy's like, Can he's like, he'll be there all day. It's good enough. It's good. It's good. And he goes, well, I have to do the outside. He goes, the outside set. We're done. He goes, we're done. He's like, yep, we're getting, we're out of here. We're out of here. And so they literally load up and they leave. And I think, good riddance. Honestly, I'm just like, good, we're done. And uh, I think two days went by, something like that. I'm not actually sure of the time frame that went by, but I come down into my basement and there's about three inches of water. It's just flowing into my basement. And so I literally I remember I just looked at it and said, that's unlucky. Um, that was my literal words. <laughs> that's unlucky. And so I called the guy who was in charge of the, the county job and say, Hey, listen, like there's water coming to my basement. I don't know if they didn't hook up the water line right. And he's like, Well, is is the, you know, is the pipe leaking? Is it no, no, it's fine. It just water's just coming to my basement suddenly. So Long story short, they come, they dig out the outside. And as they dig out the outside along my home, it reveals, lo and behold, where the pipe comes into the waterline, comes into the foundation of my home. They have broken through the foundation, and they did not patch it. So it's patched on the inside, not patched on the outside. So water was just flowing, groundwater was just flowing into my foundation and then flowing right into my basement. And so I literally saw it and thought, hmm good enough, huh, buddy? I wanted to throat punch the guy. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? And so he's looking at it, and he's like, oh, I don't know how that happened. And so his employee's like, I said I have to do the outside, and you said it was done. He's like, no, 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 I told you to get And so, of course, it's never the guy in charge's fault. And so they kind of bicker back and forth, and so he patches this thing. And of course, Anytime ground is disturbed in the village, the code enforcer shows up and so he shows up and they're just like immediately, Oh, you got nothing better to do, huh? Bleep beep 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 beep. The guy's like, Well, if you didn't screw up every job, then I wouldn't have to come back out. Bleep, bleep, bleep. I was like, Oh my goodness, the children, please, the children. You know? <laughs> <laughs> my kids are gonna walk out and be like, I heard the plumber say beep, 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 beep. What does that mean? <laughs> like, we don't know. Because those words don't make sense in that order. Like, literally, <laughs> the way he was using words, like, that doesn't make sense, dude. Like, I know you think you're saying something, but it doesn't even make sense. And so, anyway, they go back and forth, and he's like, there. And the, and the code enforcer says, listen, stop, stop, because they start to backfill. And he's like, what? He goes, that's not good enough. And he's like, nothing's ever good enough for you. And he goes, no, it's not to code. And so they start yelling back and forth about how much time it needs to cure before you can backfill it. He goes, it's not to code. You can't do it. That's not good enough. And so they yell, and he's like, fine, then you backfill it, and blah, 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 And, and the reason I'm sharing that story with you this morning is because I want to ask you a question. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? The question is kind of unique because good enough can be something we pursue as well as something we ask. Let me explain. Have you ever worked on something to the point of exhaustion? Like you've done your absolute best and then just declared, you know what, good enough. Good enough. I've done the best I can, it's good enough. If you have, and I see some people shaking their head yes, if you've ever said that, you need to realize (laughs) that this question is actually rather controversial. It's, it's rather controversial because there are some of you that are like, yeah, I've been there before, and there are others of you that are cringing at the idea of saying, wait, so you just stop and say good enough? Like You can't, you can't just say good enough, because it's not good enough. Here's what's interesting. There's two extremes of people. There's two extremes, personality-wise, of people, and then there's everyone in between that kind of fall along the gamut. On one end, one extreme, there are people that put forth the minimal amount of effort and quickly declare, good enough. Like, the job is done. It's satisfactory. Good enough. I'm barely putting in any effort, but you know what? It's done. So, good enough. It's time to move on. It's an extreme. On the other extreme of that spectrum... There are those that define good enough as something that is completed 100% correctly. Like, is it good enough? Well, is it done completely correctly? Because that is how it is good enough. So on one end, we have people putting forth the minimal amount of effort, declaring good enough almost immediately. And then on the other side, we have people painstakingly making sure that everything is 100% correct. They define good enough as absolutely done completely correctly. You see, get this, both extremes and everyone in between declare good enough. They simply define good enough differently. They define it differently. You see, good enough is subjective. It's a rather subjective concept until defined by someone else. And then, and only then, what it is that's being pursued, because we're pursuing good enough, whatever part of the spectrum you're on or wherever you're in between, you're, you're pursuing that, that which is being pursued suddenly becomes a question. I'll explain. You've been told to complete an assignment by a boss, a teacher, a parent, someone in authority over you. They've, they've told you to complete something and you complete the assignment to your standards. It's good enough. Whether Minimal amount of effort, or you have done it, in your opinion, 100% correctly. It's good enough. That which you have pursued now becomes a question. Because now the question is, is it good enough for them? Is it good enough for the person in authority? The person that gave you the assignment. You might think it's good enough, but did you actually do it to their standards? It's interesting, right? Listen, good enough will cause you, will cause us to either settle or to strive. Think about that for a second. Good enough will cause us to either settle or to strive. This isn't a Christian struggle. This isn't a a church struggle. This is a humanity struggle. If you have have air in your lungs today, if you're breathing this morning, if you're alive with blood coursing through your veins, there's the reality that good enough will either cause you to settle in some areas of your life or it will cause you to strive. The fact is, it's right where the Hebrew Christian readers were, the original readers, when the author addresses them. Was the old covenant good enough? Did they have to pursue the new covenant? Was Jesus really everything that he promised to be, or was the old covenant good enough? Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near." The law in this verse is is referring to the Old Covenant as a whole. So the Old Covenant is referred to in Scripture as the law. And so the author is using the shadow language that I touched on a couple weeks ago, if you were with us, again, to say that the Old Covenant is simply a shadow pointing to the good things to come. If you weren't with us, I'll simply summarize by saying a shadow is simply evidence of something that really exists. When you have something that really exists, it produces a shadow. And so the old covenant is a shadow, insufficient in and of itself. Only a perfect sacrifice could ever cover our sin, the sin of humanity. And so it was a shadow of the new covenant, pointing towards Christ, ultimately. So the author goes on in verse 2, it says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been once, cleansed, sorry, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. It's a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question that makes obvious the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. Like, if the Old Covenant, if, if sacrificing animals was, was working for them, and it was actually forgiving their sins, then, then they wouldn't have to have this consciousness of sin. There wouldn't be this continual struggle of the sin of their lives. It's insufficient. You see, they would sin that would require a sacrifice, and then they'd sin would require a sacrifice, and then they'd sin more. Hopefully, you're catching the pattern here. Anyway, the fact is, sacrifices were necessary in that culture daily, weekly, yearly. It was a never-ending, ongoing process. Their sacrifices couldn't Keep up with their sin. Do you ever feel like the conviction of your life just can't keep up with the, the sin of your life? That you do so much wrong that, that maybe there's no way that God would ever say that you could be good enough? Verse 4 goes on and says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I love how plainly that's stated. (laughs) I feel like it should start with, like, hey, idiots. But, you know, just so you know, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And, you know, you might be sitting here this morning and say, okay, we get it. We get it. Like, so what? I understand. Like, we're not sacrificing. Like, we're not killing bulls and goats. Thank God. We're not doing that. Like, we don't function according to the Old Covenant. So why does this text matter to us today? How does it connect to where we're at? Here's the timeless truth. It's impossible for religious activity to take away sin. That's what the author's saying. So it's called the old covenant in the text because he's making reference to the old covenant, but the reality is the lists of rules and obligations and expectations, they still exist. The law still exists. And so what the author is saying is that, hey, just so you know, Your religious activity can't take away your sin. It's why you come to church and you do the right things and then you declare, I'll never sin again. I'm I'm not going to do that anymore, only to do it again. And then to say, okay, God, seriously, like this time, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going to stop being human. It's going to be incredible. You'll be so impressed, God. Ready? (laughs) Boom, I sinned. okay, I have to ask for forgiveness again. It's the same cycle. We're way more like the Hebrews than we want to admit. We're still living in the tension, being a good person, attending church, serving, committing to change, or better yet, trying your hardest to modify your own behavior. It all falls short. It all falls short. At worst, we're crushed by the continual awareness of our brokenness. And at best, we overcome certain habits, certain things, only to be filled with pride that we've become our own savior. Two ugly sides of the same coin. Because here's the deal, it all falls short. Listen, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Your best efforts Not good enough. Aren't you excited you came to church this morning? (laughs) You're terrible. You're wretched. Let's go. (laughs) In the midst of realizing that it's not good enough, are you tempted to settle or to strive? Because it's one of those two. You're either on the side of saying, push away from the table, I can't do it. I can't do this Christianity thing. I can't do the church thing. It's too much work. It's too much effort. I'm going to settle. I'm a good person. Good enough. Or we strive. We lean in, roll up our sleeves and be like, listen, I'm going to beat myself up about the sin of my life. I am so broken and wretched and I just need to really earn my salvation. Here's the crazy thing. We know it's not good enough. Every single person in this room, whether you're a committed Christ follower or you came to church this morning as a skeptic, not sure that God even exists, there is a, there's an awareness in your soul as a human that realizes there's something broken in you. We have a sense of our own depravity. We have an awareness of our own brokenness. That's why some of us want to declare good enough quickly. The people that want to declare quickly, hey, good enough. You feel like you're living a charade spiritually. Because you realize that you haven't experienced the full process of what it means to come face to face with a savior. You're shortcutting the process somehow. You're declaring good enough and so you feel like you're just pretending. Like you're just one moment away from being exposed to the spiritual phony that you know you are. And then, all the while, for those of us that want to do things right and 100% correct, you find yourself striving spiritually. I'm going to perform for God. I'm I'm going to put on the right face. I'm going to act the right way. I'm going to do all the right motions, hoping and praying that people don't just see the gaps in my life. So, if we're all broken, if If we all find ourselves in the same place or believing one side of the same coin, what's the answer? Verses five through seven go on to say this. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, you might read this at face value and be like, yeah, I'm not really kind of connecting the dots here. The author's quoting a Davidic psalm. So King David wrote a psalm. This is Psalm 40 that's being quoted here in Hebrews. And it's called a messianic psalm. The reason why it's a messianic psalm is because King David is literally talking about the coming Messiah. It's a text about Jesus. It's a text that quotes in verse seven, then he said, and it quotes Jesus. In the Old Testament, it quotes Jesus. It says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. We see here, a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, declaring, listen, your will, God, your will, not mine. If this cup can be passed, then allow it to pass. But I will go to the cross and take the full consequences and wrath of sin on me if it be your will, as it is written in the scroll, in the Old Covenant. In other words, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I will fulfill the Old Covenant. I will be the perfect ultimate sacrifice. Your will. Not mine. The answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel setting us free. That's how we achieve freedom. That's how we stop settling and we stop striving, is to allow the truth of the gospel to permeate every aspect of our lives. Verses 8 through 10 actually go on, and they explain, verses 5 through 7, the author actually kind of exposits, if you will, the, the three verses that were just written. In verse 8 through 10, it says, Then he said above, kind of explains it, you have, desired, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, according to the old covenant. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away. The, the Greek there means he abolishes. It's a pointing forward um, in abolish, abolishment associated with the connection to slavery. He's abolishing our slavery to sin. Jesus, in fulfilling the old covenant and the law, is abolishing our connection to being enslaved by the sin of our lives. goes on in verse 10. And by that, we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 10, sanctified. This word sanctified in the Greek and in the original text is actually in what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense means it's done, it's complete. So when, when the author is saying sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus, it means completely sanctified, done. And then in case you didn't pick up on it in the tense, then ends the sentence by saying, once for all. Once for all. This is one of the most important phrases in Hebrews, in my opinion. Listen, Jesus's sacrifice is definitive and sufficient. Definitive and sufficient. You don't have to settle. You don't have to strive. It seems like too good to be true. It seems like good news. Uh, If I was cheesy, I'd capitalize on that too, right? It's the good news of the gospel. Anyway, but I won't. Verses 11 through 14 say something subtle and yet profound. Verses 11 through 12 say this. It says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. We've already established that. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This seems repetitive. Like why in the world would the author then say, hey, just so you know, I said it, then I explained it, and now I'm going to say it again, right? It's because there's something profound that's happening here. What you might not pick up on is there's a difference between the priest who stands and the priest who sits. You see, in verse 11, the priest stands daily at his service. His work is never done. There is always sin, and there is always an offering for sin. There is always a sacrifice for the sin. The priest's work is never done versus the priest, the great high priest, Jesus, who completed his work and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. It's complete. He sits in a position of authority to the right hand of the creator of the universe and intercedes on our behalf. His work is done. One stands and strives, and the other sits in a place of strength and authority. You see, it's a story of striving versus a story of strength. Being sanctified, we see at the end of verse 14. The, the verse won't be projected, but verse 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's interesting about this is uh, the, the tense changes. So in the Greek, we have the sanctified in the perfect tense. It's a done deal. And now it's progressive ongoing, being sanctified. What, what do you mean? I thought it was already done. Because the sanctification process is something that is immediate And ongoing. You see, because if we just say, listen, we're sanctified, Jesus did the work, we're done, then we manipulate and take advantage of grace. We live how we want to live and go, ah, Jesus will forgive me anyway, right? Why? Because I'm sanctified. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Look at all the terrible decisions and destructive things I do. Good thing Jesus sacrificed his life for me. It's reckless and absurd. So there's the immediate sanctification that happens when someone crosses that line of faith, but there is also those, the reality that we are being sanctified. It's immediate and ongoing. What's incredible about that is that if we think that the gospel is simply to win us, then we're cheapening the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just a story for people to come to faith. The gospel doesn't only win us, it grows us. And so we are sanctified at the moment that we cross the line of salvation, but we are being sanctified daily because of the truth of who Jesus is. It resets our heart and our mind and our priorities and the decisions that we make, not because of our efforts or because of our strength or because of our striving or even our settling. Instead, it's because the truth of the gospel is growing us day in and day out. We're being sanctified. Listen, Jesus is writing a better story through the narrative that is your life. He's writing a better story. Don't settle for a ripped-off version of your one and only life. Don't think that the God of heaven breathed life into you and brought you to this place so that you could just be a robot that earns as much money as you can to get as much junk as you can to die. What? If that's not depressing, I don't know what is. Like, here's the deal. I'm going to live 120 years to get as much stuff as I can just to leave without it. What? That's a ripoff. But we live our lives as if that's the plan. That the goal is just to accumulate. That we've been sent on this earth to simply earn our own salvation so that we can avoid hell and in some way earn heaven. It's a better story. It's a better story than that. We all too often work to earn our salvation and we get fooled into believing that this life is about striving to earn salvation and to avoid hell. That that's it. My goal is just to make it to heaven. Whew, if I could just do that. And here's the deal. If I'm super noble, if I have kids, I'm going to bring them to heaven with me. I know I'm that kind of parent. Like, what are you talking about? But all the while, the truth and the better story is that we can rest in our salvation that is already done because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you're like, wait a second. If we're already sanctified, if Jesus has already paid the price, then what are we supposed to work on? We're supposed to be working on the mission of Jesus as an outflow. Imagine that. Imagine a church of people, a gathering, a community of people that would link arms and say, listen, we're not coming together to try to earn our salvation. We're resting in the authority and strength of Jesus Christ who sat down at the right hand of the Father and mediates on behalf of us right now. And because of the freedom we experience from our humanity, we are now compelled to love We're compelled to do, not just say, but to do, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To give, not because we're philanthropic, not because we know it's the right thing to do, but because it's who we are. It's an outflow. Because Jesus gave his life, we're generous. Because of who Jesus is, we function differently. Because he's forgiven us, we can forgive others. Because he's awarded us grace, we can extend grace. It's an outflow. Verses 15 through 17, go on and say, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, another quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. No more, no more. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And get this, Verses 15 through 16 are about what we choose to remember. Because Jesus has written on our hearts and minds the truth. What we choose to remember, and then verse 17 says what God chooses to forget. Forget it. Some of us are living captive to the sin of our past, to the brokenness and depravity of our nature, and God is saying, I've already paid for that. You're missing out on the mission that I've prepared for you. What I'm calling you to do because you're living bound to the brokenness of your past, move forward. I'm writing a better story. I'm writing a better story. Don't settle for for the mistakes of the past, the mistakes of yesterday, and even the struggles of today. Allow Jesus to mediate your present and realize what it is that God chooses to forget. Because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done. It's done. He's saying he's fulfilled the old covenant. There no longer has to be a person that mediates on earth a relationship with God, that we can have direct access to God himself because of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus. And so, if that's the case, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? We say every week that the text requires something from us. And if we've really come to a place where we realize that we will never be good enough, that ultimately, we will never be good enough, no matter how hard we strive, but that because of the person and work of Jesus, it's a done deal. That we are good enough because he was good enough. If that truth has resonated and it's settled within our hearts, if the truth of the gospel are actually informing who we are, then the outflow has to be living on mission. It has to be living on mission. What is it that we're going to do with what it is that God has done. If it's not about gathering, it's not about busyness and all the to-do lists and all the things that crowd our mind and the things that, that we celebrate on this plane that we get wrapped up in, if it's not about moving those forward, then it has to be about the mission of God. And listen, it doesn't mean that we bail on those things. It doesn't mean that we go, oh, I'm sorry, I, can't, I can no longer participate in that because now I've found the Lord. You're like, wow, you're creepy. I hope I never find the Lord. You know, like, No, I'm talking about being gospel-centered influencers in every sphere of life, every sphere that God sends us to, that we would be gospel-centered influencers. It means that we engage those communities, those workplaces, those teams, those classrooms, whatever they are, on mission not trying to work out our own salvation, but boldly with strength saying the the truth of the narrative of my salvation has already been written and I come as a free person, not trying to gain acceptance or approval or earning anything, but instead in the strength of who I am as a child of God. And because of that, I can influence. I can be a person of hope. I can live on mission. I can be an influencer. So the question that I want you to consider as you leave this place the application I want you to wrestle with is this. Who will I share my story with this week? Who will I share my story with this week? I know for some of you, it sounds like a scary concept. Like, wait, what? No one. My wife? My dog? (laughs) Someone that won't judge me? Another Christian? And I want to tell you, if you have a sense of hesitancy... In sharing your story, it's probably because you're either settling or striving. And you have to recenter your heart and mind around the truth of who God is. For some of us in this room, you might say, I don't think I have a story. Like, I'm on the not sure God exists side. And if that's you this morning in the room, I want to tell you that maybe the person you have to share your story with this week is God. That the story you have to tell is, God, I've been living my life with me in the center. I've been living as if I'm the God of my own life, trying to negotiate and figure out this world as if the things on this level matter more than your mission. Maybe for you this morning, your application is to cross the line of faith, to lay your life down and say, okay, God, would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? If that's you this morning, it can be as simple as that. You don't have to come forward or raise your hand or anything like that. It can be as simple as you sitting in the quietness of your seat and saying, God, I've lived for myself long enough. You know the story of my life. Here's my brokenness. Would you forgive me and allow what you did on the cross to wipe away my sins? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. can start that easily. For others of us in this room that have crossed that line of salvation, for you, the application might look like sharing your story that encourages someone that's in a very similar situation. I think all too often we think of our story as like this awkward, robotic, like religious jargon that you're like, hey, God loves me and he loves you, and huh. So I know I'm not supposed to say God at work, but there was a cross and blood. And the blood covers you, and it covers me. This is going bad. To, you know, like, that's the, Those are the images that I would conjure up. Like I'm not going to share my faith. This is going to derail quickly. You know, like, This is not going to go well. And so instead, we just sit there and be like, hey, have a good day. I'm just going to live my life and be a nice person, and maybe they'll catch up on it. Maybe sharing your story is walking up to the person that's broken and crying or whatever and say, hey, listen, I used to be in the place of hurt that you're in, and if you want, I'll tell you about the journey that I had, and it might be a, a journey that, that you're interested in and it might not be. You see, we don't have to, to turn our faith story into some weird religious jargon that requires us to be fully informed on all the theological questions and implications that they might ask, <laughs> more often than not looks like us just saying hey I went through that same pain and here's how I found hope in the midst of my brokenness I don't even have all the answers for you because I'm still in process so if you have questions I can't answer I'll just direct you to people that might be able to answer them but I just want to tell you that you're not alone that there's a better story that God loves you or how about I care about you I do so I want to challenge you this morning. Who will you share your story with this week? For others of you, you might say, listen, I've crossed that line of salvation. I've, I'm, I'm a person of faith, and I am continually looking for opportunity to, to encourage others with, uh, with realizing how it is that God has done things in my life and sharing my story. For you, it may be that you purposely, with intention, live on mission in a way that is sharing your faith. Maybe you have gotten to the point where you have spoken with people and shared your story enough to where now it looks like you have to intentionally increase your sphere of influence. Maybe it looks like uh, intellectually engaging someone. If you have that style of evangelism to be able to say, okay, I'm equipped and I'm going to intellectually engage. Maybe it looks like invitational to just say, listen, I'm going to invite you to a place where maybe some of your answers where your questions might get answered. We all, we all have different styles of evangelism. Are we functioning according to those? Are we living on mission? So I ask again, who will I share my story with this week? Let's go ahead and bow our heads. And uh, if, if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes just so you're not distracted with the team coming up. If not, you can feel free to, to leave your eyes open and just look down on the ground so you're not distracted. Here's the thing that's interesting. Whenever it comes to an application like this where it involves sharing a story with someone or interacting with a person, it's amazing how immediately, immediately the Lord lays a person on your heart or mind. And you try to be like, uh, let's change the subject <laughs> or pretend that that's not happening, but it's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart and mind it's not always the, the person that is most against spirituality that God's calling us to influence. Oftentimes, it's the person right around us. It's a family member, sibling, spouse, child. I don't know who it is, but I know that the Lord is faithful to, to speak to your heart right now, and, and maybe that person is you, and it's time to just lay your life down and cross that line. Say, okay, God, enough is enough. I want to lead us in prayer as we begin to respond this morning. Heavenly Father, come before you and we just pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, that you would make clear what it is that you'd have us to do, that we wouldn't be people simply going through religious activity. We went to church, check. Heard the message, check. That doesn't lead to life change. Instead, God, would you wreck us? (laughs) Would you wreck our hearts and minds? Would Would you allow us not to settle for a lesser version? Would you equip us to be people that live on mission, that we would leave this place sent because of what it is that we've experienced, because of the hope that we've experienced, because of what it is that you've done in and through us? And so we respond this morning aware, aware of who you are, what you've done, who we can be as a result.